We are in Psalm 115. So let's turn there and look at the psalm. And as always, we're going to do two things before we get into the lesson itself, and that is to really investigate background and uh, finding the center of it. Let me read the 115th Psalm. It is titled in the ESV, To Your Name, Give Glory. And the uh, commentator, Eric Lane, that we're following, at least for structure, calls it Sola Dio Gloria, which is to the glory of God alone in the Latin. And it really does capture this text. It says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have Mouths, but do not speak, and eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Again, it is God's word for God's people for God's glory. Amen. I've titled it God glorified alone and forever. And there, there's a reason for that forever because it's so important the way the text ends. Um, the background of this is um, always, it's always notable. I I find that Eric Lane's uh, um, reasoning on the background of, of these psalms is very helpful. Uh, for the 115th one, he puts it in the period of Samuel, uh, the victory at Mizpah. Um, and he says there appear to be no psalms from the period of Moses to Samuel, about 300 years. And this doesn't mean there was no poetic or musical output during that time. The song of Deborah, Judges 5. The song of Hannah, 1 Samuel 2 indicate that spiritual songs were being composed, but none qualified for use in the national liturgy, which is what the Psalms were for the Jews. This may have been because, generally speaking, this was such a barren period that no one no one encouraged and promoted compositions to be used in the worship of God. The two mentioned uh, already, the Judges 5, 1 Samuel 2, are intensely personal. 
Samuel, however, established colleges of prophets all over the land. These were not training colleges, but societies where those with prophetic gifts could meet and even live together. Periodically, they would go to minister to the people, and this ministry included music and singing, and it can be noted, uh, put a stake down, First Chronicles 25. Um, I think we also ran across this a little bit when we studied through the books of First and Second Kings years past. Um, its influence was strong, and as we can see from its powerful effect on Saul, 1 Samuel 19, 19-24. One reason for placing the 115th Psalm in the time of Samuel is that there is no reference to the monarchy, the house of David, the city of Jerusalem, or its temple. If the Psalm were a personal poem, these facts would not be uh, significant. However, it's clearly a great national ode. It is sung by the whole congregation, verses 1 through 3. It's addressed to the whole nation, verses 9 through 11. The people, verse 9, the priest, and probably the prophets, verse 11. It's quite likely that it was sung antiphonally to give the impression of a great concourse led by a choir of priests and prophets. A great national occasion which does not refer to the throne, David, the temple, and the city is unthinkable, so it must predate all of these. That's Eric Lane's reasoning. This can only point to the time of Samuel. But then it's precisely when then. If we know it's the time of Samuel, then when exactly? Well, the psalm celebrates a deliverance from calamity in verse 2, a victory of God over idols, verse 3 through 8, leading to a rededication of the nation to God, verses 9 through 13, and an inscription of praise to him in verses 14 through 18. And so the occasion that best fits this scenario is Samuel's gathering of the people at Mizpah, 1 Samuel 7, 5 through 14. A little background here before we read that. It had been 20 years since the Ark of the Covenant had been recovered from the Philistines, but it was still at Kerjath Jerem under the guard, 1 Samuel 6, 21 through 7, 1. Since the Lord dwelt between the cherubim above the Ark, this signified a breach between him and the people and due to the worship of the Ashtaroth. And so when they dedicated, they wanted to return to the Lord. Um, Samuel called on them to put the Ashtoreth away, which they did. But Ashtoreth was a Philistine deity, and the Philistines took this as an insult and came out against them. Samuel prayed, however, and God destroyed the Philistines with a great storm. And to mark this, Samuel set up a stone, and you'll hear this name sung in... Um, one of our hymns that we sing, and it's, he called it Ebenezer, meaning thus far the Lord has helped us. And Eric Lane says, this is the key to the song. When he says it's the key, I take from Bob Godfrey's lessons on the Psalms. Really, it's the center, because if you look in the Psalm, verses 9 through 11, the very center of the Psalm, is the words that you would indicate the occasion of the psalm, and it is, he is their help. He says it three times. He is their help and their shield. And so um, there's some internal evidence in the language that this is likely the very occasion that this psalm was written in. So let's go over to 1 Samuel, the background, and chapter 7. 
make our way over there, and we'll look at five, seven, chapter 7, 5 through 14. And I'll actually pick up in um, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. You can kind of see, right? You can kind of see that, that same flow poetically in the psalm that we're reading. Serve him only. He'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the people put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And now when the Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people said to Samuel, do not Cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called his name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all these days of his life, all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Again, it's the word of the Lord for God's people, for God's glory. And we, we see that um, back in the 115th Psalm, now as we get into the actual lesson at hand, we get into uh, the very structure of this psalm, and the lesson of this psalm is we see God is glorified here alone and forever. And, uh, and, and the, if you were to take it and, 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 and put it into the sense of a sermon point, um, we see that sola dia gloria, um, the glory of God is given to him alone for being our help. Um, it's the same kind of message this morning that we spoke about faith. Faith gives all the credit to the Lord because he's the giver of all faith. And here we see this salvation brought in a physical way to the people of Israel. 
he gets all the glory for being the stone of help. And in order to uh, have what is experienced in the end of the psalm, which is an assurance that God will help them in the future, and wouldn't that be nice to have? Always that we know, it's not just that we know God worked in the past. It's not just that we know God is with us now. But it's, will he be with us in the future? Will he be with us tomorrow? Will he be with us years from now? And the gospel of Jesus Christ gives a resounding amen to the promises of, of God in Christ Jesus and, and the promises that Christ himself made that I'll be with you to the end of the age. So the God who's with his people in the past and the God who's with his people now can be assuredly trusted he'd be with us forever. But how do you get there and not just simply be told that and be told you should believe this? How is it that your hearts would leap and believe that thing and have that assurance? And this psalm gives you that answer. This psalm gives you the means by which you may be assured that God will be with you in the future. And you say, how so? Well, first, um, the first thing is you must learn the lesson of God's victory in this psalm. The first eight verses, we see God's lesson of victory. It's a lesson that foremost gives the glory to God alone, sola dio gloria, Verses 1 and 2. Why does God save? Uh, he says very clearly, even to Israel, he says um, that he didn't save them because of anything in them. He didn't save them for their sake. He saved them for his glory. He saved them for his name's sake. And um, the first time that truth hit home was a time when uh, I remember... Uh, a message that John Piper preached in a chapel in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he, he, he proclaimed really the essence of let the nations be glad. And he proclaimed from the Scripture, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, especially in the prophets, that God is saved for His glory. And that's a radical statement at the time, because at the time, the churches were largely in love with themselves, and they, they thought that they were just so great that God saved them for their sake, because they were something. They offered him something. And it was radical at that time, though maybe not as much now with the resurgence of Reformed theology, that, that we say that and forget that there was a time in our nation where the majority of the churches were really just so enamored by uh, a made-up God that would save them for some other reason than his glory. But it was the most freeing thing because if God saves for his glory and for his name, it gives some sense of a stability. It gives a rock of salvation. But if it has anything to be based on man, then that can fluctuate based on the goodness of man. But the glory of the victory that God brings in salvation has no movement in the sense of being shaken or made unstable or made to flinch 
because it is founded in the glorious purposes of God himself. And it's a very freeing thing that his steadfast love and his faithfulness are the reason why he saved a people and why he saves. And the prayer here is, why should the nation say, where is their God? And then it goes on and says, our God is in the heavens. And here it is. He does all he pleases. He's not doing things um, at our council. He's not doing things because it pleases us necessarily. He's doing what he pleases and all that pleases him is good. And God saves on the basis of his own goodness. Um, there, there's no buddy, there's no made up God that has this attributes. There's no, no God, man doesn't come up with a God like this. Man doesn't fashion a, a God who's centered upon his glory. Man fashions idols that are described like we see here. They're silver and gold. They're the work of, of man's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. This is quite convicting here because if you look at, trace down, you have those who make these idols become like these idols. You want to know why there, there are those who can sit idly by and not defend the orphan and the widow and speak up against the injustice of the world with love and, and truth? It's, it's because of idolatry. We become like what we worship. If we worship God, we become like him. And therefore, we're going to reflect the character and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Here he says that these idols have mouths, they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They, they, they play the refusal to look at the problems and... Therefore, the people become just like them. They, they become like the idols they make. There's eyes there, but, but they act like they don't see any of it. If they can just ignore it, it doesn't affect them, right? They're, they're idolaters. They're not speaking. They're ignoring. They have ears, but they don't hear. I mean, the noises are all there, but they're not listening in a way of obedience. They're like their idols. They have noses, but don't smell. I always love what Paul David Tripp said in his marriage class where he gives a description about how, I think it was Paul David Tripp, he goes into a house and um, he sees all the beauty of the house. He walks in and, I mean, the place is immaculate and... Uh, He's there as a guest, and, and everything looks just perfectly in place. But then there's this awful smell, and it turns out that the couple had been storing all their garbage in the basement. And he said, that's just what a lot of people do. They clean up all of the presentable stuff for other people, but in fact, 
they keep putting all the garbage in the basement. And even though someone can't come and say, man, we, everything looks perfect. We, we don't know what's wrong, but something doesn't smell right. God's given us instincts like that. But see, idolaters, they, they have noses, but they don't really smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They're, they got the ability to, to feel, but for whatever reason, they don't feel. And the reason at the bottom of it, according to this psalm, is their idolatry. They got feet, but they don't walk. It's certainly things they should um, walk in in wisdom and in love. But they don't because their idols that they worship, they become like them. They don't walk. If you were to examine their spiritual walk, there is none because they are only like their idols. There's really nothing happening. They, um, they don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. And the obvious thing is, this is poetry, and it's saying, it's saying very clearly that the idols are the are are forsaking these idols. These these idols is what brings defeat. And we learn the background. Um, victory comes by wholly dedicating yourself to the living God. Wholly giving yourself to the one who has eyes to see, ears to hear a heart, feet, all those things are personifications of God, but we know He walked in the garden. Adam with Him in the cool of the day. He was a God who, we see He's God who is one who sent His Son to come in the world and take on flesh and walk among us. He's not like the idols. So to have victory, one must give, must give yourself to the God who's alive. If you give yourself to idols, you become like idols. Idols that are made by man, they don't do anything. They can't accomplish anything. They don't stand up for justice truly, or, or they don't extend mercy. They're not gracious. They don't listen to people's problems. They don't think through things in a biblical way. They can't because they're like their idols. They're, they're futile in their thinking. And for one to have victory, you have to be fully dedicated to God, which means to be fully forsaking of the idols. And that's what they did in 1 Samuel, we read. They forsook their idols. They forsook the Ashtoreth. And God gave them victory. God caused a great thunder and the Philistines fled and they pursued them and they destroyed them. And those accounts are all written for us, to, written for the church today to see how victory is won. It's not won by idolatry. It's won by forsaking idolatry and by a full pursuit of God. So the first lesson is that, is that for there to be, for there to be this assurance that you will know God will be with you in the future, you've got to learn that lesson of victory. That's the first thing. Well, 
Um, you must fully heed heed the call to dedicate yourself to God. And this comes out, it's obviously been said already, but it comes out brilliantly in verses 9 through 11. It says again and again, trust in the Lord. He's their help. He's your help. Trust in the Lord. And But notice he's addressing three people, which Eric Lane, if you listen closely to the brief commentary I made, he indicated these people groups. He speaks to the nation, O Israel. He speaks to the priesthood, O Aaron. And he speaks likely to the prophets uh, here that fear the Lord, according to Lane. I think it might be fair to say, um, because we see in the Bible, God-fearers aren't necessarily... Uh, by Jewish birth, but are those who even are Gentiles. You know, something I learned this week, I didn't know you could put your spiritual stake on this, but did you, did you know Caleb was a Gentile? Joshua, Caleb. It shows up in the Bible that he was a Kenizzite. His father was a Kenizzite. He actually was not a Jew. Somehow he gets included to the tribe of Judah. It's amazing. You have, you have Joshua, the type of Christ, walking with a Gentile into the promised land. It was God's plan all along. When we get to Romans 9 through 11, I had to go and like write that down. So when I get there, but I'm telling you it now in case I miss that, but it's an amazing thing. God's plan has always been to reach all peoples. It was to reach uh, the house of Aaron. It was to reach the nation of Israel and it was to reach the nation's that would be considered fears of God. And he addresses them here in 9 through 11. He says, every one of them, he says, here's what you must do. Trust in the Lord. Have faith in the Lord. In other words, evangelical faith, not Roman Catholic faith that just says you must assent to what the church believes. No, you must believe this. There is no such thing as a saving faith in your life if it's not a personal faith that you have, that you own. It cannot be the faith of, of your pastor. It can't be the faith of another church member. It can't be the faith of your mom and dad. And it certainly can't be the faith of your grandparents. It has to be your faith. You've got to embrace this faith. You've got to stand before God. As Ken Ham has said, and probably others have said, that God has no grandchildren. That's why we're not simply just bringing everybody in just because they're related. They must be related by the blood of the Lamb, not merely by the blood that's in our veins. They must have the spiritual rebirth that takes place where they not merely come to church because they have a drug problem. You know what a drug problem is? The parents, have, the kids, they've been drugged to church. Drug back before. I know, not, not a comedian, but I use what I can at times. So... You can't be at the point where you just got a drug problem and that's why you come to church. A drug problem can't bring you to church. You've got to have a heart that's changed to bring you to church. It can't be just because you're forced to do something or it is actually sin. It has to be because you want to do it because your heart has been absolutely ravished by the love and mercy and beauty of Christ, which can only happen by regeneration. You must be born again. You must trust in the Lord. 
How does that happen? It is a miracle. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, right? That, that type of miracle. It's not something you control. It's not something that you can make happen. It's something that God, by His mercy, is willing to do. And we see it increasingly as He saves sinners still. He saved you and me. We don't have to doubt that we disciple our children, we disciple our loved ones, we keep pointing them to Christ. We, if we know the lesson of victory, we dedicate ourselves fully to the Lord. All right, we know how victory is accomplished. There's a sword that comes out of our Lord's mouth, and it's promised that it is going to slay the nations. That doesn't mean and, and that, that we're going to feast on the flesh of kings, the flesh of all men, right? What does that mean? It doesn't mean that in heaven one day we're going to sit down and eat people. It doesn't mean that. It's a figurative illustration for the future beyond the first century that God's plan is to conquer this world for the sake of His Son who prays, according to the second psalm, give me the nations as my inheritance. That's it. So trust that Lord. Trust Him with your children. Trust Him with your parents. Trust Him with your grandparents. Trust Him with your loved ones. But trust the Lord. No matter what category you fall in. If you're part of a nation. A mighty nation. If you're part of a chosen nation. Part of a nation that's experienced God's blessing. Trust the Lord. If you're, if you're part of the clergy. You're part of the of the priesthood as it might be here if you're given the responsibility to care for the flock of God trust the Lord if you're among the God fearers that were grafted into the the beauty of this family trust the Lord every category of man is brought in and told to do the same thing no one's being told to do something different they're all being called to do the same thing trust the Lord because that's how every one of them is going to have the assurance that he'll be with them in the future no matter what category they fall into. It's all the same remedy, the same solution. Isn't that the case? It doesn't matter if you're a king. It doesn't matter if you're some high-standing person. It doesn't matter if you're a minister. It doesn't matter if you're someone who's um, playing a role in the military that's uh, of a greater or lesser sort. It doesn't matter what position you're in. If you're a mother or a father, it doesn't matter if you're a child that's trying to do your classes and do your studies, it doesn't matter what area you're falling into, the remedy for you is the same, just like if you went to the doctor, right? Everybody gets sick of the same stuff. They go to the doctor. They're going to need medicine. If it's the same type of illness, they've got to be given the same medicine. And the, and the thing that we're called to all equally, everybody, is trust the Lord. All must have faith. All must put their faith and trust in God if they're going to have, and they must do it wholly, if they're going to have assurance he'll be with them in the future. There's no way to give rock-solid assurance to anyone who does not, in the day they're living, put their trust in God today. Today's the day of salvation. How, what's one of the best ways you can know he'll be with you tomorrow? Is that you put your trust in him today. Because right? you're not guaranteed tomorrow, but you're guaranteed that if you put your trust in God today, He'll be with you tomorrow. 
And that's, that's the rock-solid assurance he gives. you got to learn the lesson of victory. This is how God accomplishes victory. You put away idols. You put your full trust in God. How do you know that he's going to be with you tomorrow? You're going to put your full trust positively in the Lord and not merely put away the idols. And then finally, the third lesson shows up in verses 12 and following. And here we see this assurance, the, the pinnacle. It's really not so much a propositional statement, but that God is glorified in each of these points in those who learn God's lesson of victory, one, in those who lay aside idols and trust wholly in him, two, and finally, he's glorified when his people are fully assured of his help in the future. He's actually glorified when people grow in the fullness of assurance that they know because he's with them right now and because they have forsaken idols and they've dedicated themselves to him, they, can, they have this joy and this assurance welling up in them that just is coming out the rim because they know he's going to be with them the next day and the next year in all their days. There's really something wonderful that happens here because if you read down, uh, each part's important. Um, 12 and 13, I'm going to save. Well, no, no, not 12 and 13, but 14 and 15, I'll save for the benediction. I was like looking for the next benediction. I'm like, well, that's a good one. It's great when it's just there. And so we're going to use that. But look at 12 and 13, it says, the Lord has remembered us. And notice the future, right? We're not making this up. This is what the text teaches authoritatively. And we're sticking to the text. The text says he will bless us. Who will he bless? The three groups he named. He'll bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Now, when we read that, that should match everything that I've said in the previous, right? You should examine that by the word of God. Is that what God's saying? I believe that's what God is saying. Clearly from the text, it is the authoritative word of God. When the word of God is proclaimed, it is that which is binding our consciences because it is God speaking through the proclaimed word, not merely a man. It is God, the holy God of the universe, who has chosen the means of the proclamation of his word to bring us under his word for his glory, and our everlasting joy. And he says, he will bless. He's not a God that, that just simply was. He's not simply a God that is. He's a God who's to come. He's a God who's with you all your days. And, uh, of course, that benediction is recorded in 14 and 15. We'll close the service tonight with. But jumping ahead, verse 16 there's this statement that the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children, the children of men, the children of man. I have a little note down here about this, that if you, if you know the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew 6, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so, and so forth. Um, we could say, etc. It, it is the Lord's heavens. He's given the earth, it says, to the children of man. And you can think also some references that pop off Hebrews, right? It was said that 
You've put all things under his feet, speaking of man. And the writer of Hebrews says, but we don't see that. But what we do see is we see a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has put the enemies under his feet. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to be the only one. He is the leader of us, and he is going to put all our enemies under our feet. We are victors in Christ Jesus. We share as his children in victory because we're united to Christ. And it's just another emphasis, too, that the earth, the earth's future is not a future of destruction. It is a future of renewal. This world is God's world. This is our Father's world. Though the wrong seems also strong, He's the ruler yet. And a lot of people get mixed up eschatologically because they're not looking up what does it mean when He speaks about the melting away of the planet or the burning up of these things. Just a couple simple references, you'll find that these were prophetic references of the passing away of the old order and the bringing of the new covenant. This was not a a death sentence on the earth. That's how humanists think. They want to get people to lay up their idols that don't speak and talk and, and hear and smell, and they want to make people to be saviors of the earth. We have a God who's promised that he will redeem us, all creation, and that includes the very grounds that we walk on day in and day out. It includes the beauty of the earth being brought to its full and final purpose. A lot of people just simply think about in terms of a euphoral spiritual realm where they escape the body, and that's dualism, and that's almost getting to the point where there's several heresies that are going to be involved, but Christianity doesn't teach that. Christianity teaches that he redeems the whole man, body and soul. Many funerals are preached are nothing more than a Gnostic funeral, one of my professors said to me. And as I began to think about that and think through, I want to make sure I didn't do that. So that's why the burial is so important. When I go to the graveside and we lay the body in the ground, I say to the families that we lay this body to rest in the ground with the sure hope that God will raise this body up on the last day. We have the belief as Christians, not merely that He saves the soul, but that part of that human being is here on earth still until he comes again and defeats death. That's why it's, it's, not a, it's not a trite thing. It's not just something of going through the motions. It matters how you treat this flesh. It matters how we treat the earth. But it's not the way of environmentalism of the secular nature. It's the fact that we see this is our Father's world And we want to steward it all well. We want to respect it. We want to honor him. We're concerned about pleasing God. And we're not worshiping dumb, mute idols. So therefore, we're going to think like him and love the things he loves. Not because we're something better, but because he's united himself to us in his son. The reason we want those things is because our hearts have been given from God. 
Now, it requires for us to be instructed by the word of God as to how to live those things out. That's why we should with David say, I love your law because there are general principles in the law as to how best to treat the land, how best to harvest the fields, how to do those things. Those aren't binding on us as if rewards and curses like we're the nation of Israel, but they are general principles that are not thrown away because they are expositions of the Ten Commandments for our very lives. We ought to listen to what God says. As one I was listening to today um, says that you, you probably, the little blank page between your Old and New Testament, you should tear that out. Of course, uh, we're not saying to do that. But we're saying, in the sense, the point is, is that Abraham of the old, like we talked about this morning, is not separated from the new. We should have learned at least that. It goes all the way through. And so you see that uh, just Abraham, for example, right? He could look at a land that looked dismal and he could take it and see a future for it and blessing because of God's promises. And the world may look to be a desert to us right now. And it may look to be something in which Supposedly, resources will be running out, but we have to either trust the living God or trust our own reasoning. And so we ought to view things with some instruction from the word of God differently than how the rest of the world views it. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, the earth he has given to the children of man. But here's something very interesting that gets sticky, especially with many of the commentators. They go here and they say, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. And right there, a whole can of worms is opened up concerning, concerning these statements that, oh, the Jews didn't understand about how the afterlife is. All they believed is um, they had to pray, Lord, keep me alive to praise you because when I'm dead, I can't praise you. That's not at all what this teaches. If you read the next verse, it says, but we will bless the Lord. How long? Did they know they were going to die? Yes. But they said, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Which would really be like saying hallelujah there. And what is their belief here? What does actually the text say? The text says... The dead, they don't praise the Lord. And those who go down to silence that have worshipped idols, they don't praise the Lord. But in a sense, we're never going to die. That's what he's saying. Because it says, but we will forever. That's the assurance this psalm is leading up to by saying, learn a lesson of victory that glorifies God. Forsake your idols and cling wholly to God today. And you will be assured that he will be with you, not just merely tomorrow, but he'll be with you past the grave. Because if you're in the living God, and you're united to the God who's alive forever, there will not be a day that you will not praise him if you trust him today. 
That's the type of hope the Bible gives that man cannot and does not create by mute idols. To me, it's just a much better way to live. It's a much better worldview. But it's not, it's not resting on my opinion or your opinion. It's resting on this is the authoritative word of God. The stone the builders rejected, 1 Peter says, has become the cornerstone. I remember the first time I, I was instructed on that text that what he's talking about is that becoming the cornerstone is the resurrection. When Christ rose from the grave, when he was rejected, it was the cross, but when he rose from the grave, he is now the thing that holds the whole building together and he makes us part of that building. And we are, as, as, as Peter says, living stones. And it's an amazing work he does. It's a work of building that takes a man whose life was nothing, a woman whose life is nothing, and promises to restore and confirm and to strengthen and establish those who put their trust in God. And if you believe these things, if you believe these things set forth by this psalmist, by the way, 1 Peter 1.7 is what I've quoted, then you know not only will God be glorified forever, but you will be glorifying him forever. From the moment you've trusted him to whatever is in the future. That assurance is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's stand together and sing our praise to the Lord for it. And we'll come back for benediction in here in just a moment. So I think you have to turn in your blue book there to I Surrender All. So find that. And as our musicians come, let's sing to the Lord. And then we'll come back for um, that promised blessing from Psalm 115.